0: Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, and now your host, Ayao Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. It's crazy to think that we are now on our seventh year. Don't ask me how that all just flew by, but it did. Man, time moves fast, and it's only because of you, the listeners if you'd like us to stick around another seven years and there's a few simple things you can do that would really really help us out i would endlessly appreciate if you would number one share our episodes with your friends number two Post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram, and tag me at Al Levy URM Audio and at URM Academy, and of course our guests. And number three, leave us reviews and five star reviews wherever you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again. Thank you for all the years and years of loyalty. I just want you to know that we will never charge you for this podcast, and I will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes in every single way. All we ask in return is a share, a post, and tag us. Oh, and one last thing. Do you have a question you would like me to answer on an episode? I don't mean for a guest. I mean for me. It can be about anything. Email it to me at al at URM.academy. That's E-Y-A-L at U-R-M dot A-C-A-D-E-M-Y. There's no dot .com on that. It's exactly the way I spelled it. And use the subject line, Answer Me al. All right, let's get on with it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the URM podcast. My guest today is Lewis Johns, who is a producer, mixer, mastering engineer out of the UK who has worked with bands such as Loathe, Palm Reader, many others. You know, in uh, 2017, he produced The Warmth of a Dying Sun by Employee to Serve and got awarded Kerrang's Album of the Year for that. He was also nominated for a Heavy Music Award in 2019. He's got several IR packs as well as drum sample packs and uh, is all in all fucking awesome. Let's get into this. Lewis Johns, welcome to the URM podcast. Thanks for having me, dude. It's a pleasure. Thank you for uh, dealing with my crazy scheduling issues, so appreciate it. (laughs) That's okay. You're basically the busiest man in the world anyway, aren't you? I wouldn't go that far, but my schedule just gets more and more and more insane and the challenge of how to organize my time and delegate it properly and stay efficient just compounds. It gets crazier and crazier as I go, but I mean, I'm sure you know how that is.
1: Yes, yeah, it can be pretty crazy sometimes, but
0: you seem to handle it well, so you're doing good. I do my best. But what about you? Like, How do you make sure that you stay on top of everything studio-wise? Because I know that you also... You make products, you have workshops, like how do you stay on top of everything?
1: To be honest, I try and give myself like a good amount of time off in between those things. So if anything does kind of run over um, or if I need some extra time or something, then I've got like a bit of a backup plan. A lot of the time I'm mixing now, so I'm I'm fairly flexible anyway. But yeah, it's, it's just keeping to schedule as much as possible. I think that, you know, sometimes creatives aren't very good at that and I do try to do that as much as possible.
0: When I can, I think building the buffer is really wise. I used to run into problems and I know that a lot of people run into problems by saying yes to too many projects um, and over, overestimating how much they can get done in a short period of time. Like, you know, there's four projects, we'll just get this one done in these five days and then we can go on to that one and it'll be great. They don't take into consideration how long things actually take and the wild card variable of something going wrong. So I feel like any project that you take add 30% time wise to your estimate.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think you've got to be honest with yourself as well when you're getting bookings in and you know we all know that people try and kind of skimp on budget a lot of the time and stuff. You just got to be honest with yourself and think, you know, if this is going to take longer than I think it's going to take, then maybe it's not for me.
0: Yeah. If it doesn't meet your needs, I guess.
1: Yeah, exactly. Or if it's, um, if you think it's going to be something that you're going to be really working your ass off to get it in on the deadline, it's knowing when to kind of step away from projects like that, I think.
0: I feel though, at some point in your career, in the earlier stages, especially, I think you kind of have to just be cool with projects like that because otherwise you're not going to get more projects if you don't just make the ones that you do have work however possible
1: yeah absolutely and i think that i mean you know i think that you can be kind of a little bit selective in that kind of process as well like if you know read the room a little bit if you think that a band are going to blow up or you think that they're going to have a bit of profile yeah maybe spend a little bit longer on it than you normally would and then the sort of more bread and butter stuff then maybe try and get out a little bit quicker but yeah it's definitely like project to project isn't it
0: yeah i think Though that with an established career and age and I guess wisdom, it's a lot easier to know how long something should take. It's also, I think, a good policy to just save your energy. And when it does happen that you're on a super important prod I mean, they're all important, but let's just say on a priority project and the deadline is insane and you have to get it done in time that you can still dip into the energy reserves and do what you have to do to get it done. But if that's not the norm, then you're not going to burn out, right? If you have to do that once a year on a project or twice a year on a project, that's not such a big deal. If that's happening on every single project, well, that's a different story. That's bad planning.
1: Yeah, and I think we can we can all say at some point we've probably burned out. Like there was a couple of years ago where I was just – taking on everything and not giving myself any buffer or any time off or anything like that. And, like, the burnout is real, you know. It makes your work not as good for it and, you know, it affects your personal life, everything like that. So, yeah, I think it's important.
0: The saying yes to everything, it's a tough one because if you go from, a, I guess, a, a condition of not having stable work to suddenly having a lot of work, it's very, very hard to say no to things because you don't want to go back to having no work there's this fear associated with it I think
1: yeah definitely I think like anyone that's self-employed's probably like that to an extent it's just I guess it's it just comes with getting a bit older and you know knowing that one, I think once you've been there and you've kind of experienced it it's much easier to be like oh is this actually gonna you know is this gonna affect me negatively so, yeah, I definitely think that comes with age and experience as well. Like, the more the more you do it, the more you sort of know.
0: How, but do you think that when you're starting and you don't have an established name, um, you don't have a track record or, like, you know, a solid income from it, that you should pretty much say yes to everything?
1: To an extent. Like, obviously, if it's absolutely killing you, then, you know. But we've all been there. Like, we've all been in, in studios coming up where, you know, you're doing as much as you possibly can in the day and then in the evenings or whatever you're you're trying to do your own stuff so that I think is quite an important part of growing um but yeah I think that also as well like when you say yes to everything you sort of learn to record and mix everything as well like you know you're not you're not limiting yourself to like one particular genre or um, one particular sound or something. So I think that's really, really good for someone's growth, especially as a producer or a mixer, figuring out, like, you know, what is maybe take on something that's completely different. You know, if you're not in the metal world or something, maybe this folk band or something like that is going to help you further on down the line with something else. So, yeah, that that stage, I think it is pretty important to take on a lot of different kind of projects. But, yeah, obviously, when you get a bit older, it's a little bit, little bit more difficult to, you know, do it all. So... I do get it.
0: Yeah. Take advantage of youth. Uh, it's the same thing as when getting good at an instrument, you know, in those early years, you should be practicing eight hours a day. That That is when you should do it, especially if you're in high school. I mean, before you're in the real world, that you, those years should be spent with just Crazy work doing every single thing that you can to get better because as you get older, you're not going to be able to put that kind of energy into it. And uh, I feel like that kind of energy is required to get really, really good at this type of thing production, music, whatever any sort of creative field that requires a high degree of technical competency. You have to put the time in. And as you get older, it gets harder and harder to put the time into improving. Um, and other things happen, like life. Life happens. Relationships start to matter more. Things like that that also take time start to matter a lot more and you have to balance it. I have this theory because a lot of the people, almost all the people that we have on this podcast or Riff Hard or on Nail the Makes everybody is super established. Every once in a while, I'll bring people who are at the very early stages of their career on to onto your own podcast, you know, people who are in their first few years of being pro or almost pro, but who are like definitely on their way. But by and large, it's people who have been doing this for a very long time. And so by and large, they all have set schedules, hours that they work until, rules about how long they'll spend in the studio. And those are all great. But one thing that I really hope that people who are listening, who are at the early stages of their career, take from that is that that's an ideal to strive towards. That's a good goal to get to, to get to a point in your career where you can say, I take weekends off. You can say I'm done at 6 p.m. or 8 p.m. or whatever it is. I have set working hours and then I have my life. That's a great place to get to. But if you impose that sort of schedule in the early days, like when you're trying to intern or assist or you know first start working with bands, that's almost a recipe for failure and a recipe for not getting as good as the people who will do the 36 hour long sessions and who will happily get broken up with by their girlfriends or boyfriends in order to do this thing and who will fail in school in order to practice guitar the full eight to 10 hours a day. Absolutely. Yeah. You're gonna be up against those people.
1: Yeah. Again, there's so many hungry people out there that want it as well. So if you start saying to notice stuff like early on in your career, you know, the person next to you is going to go and get it. And you know, it's, th- it's always going to be there for someone else to have. So yeah, you do have to be really hungry for it early on. And that's like, sometimes we get interns come through the ranch and it's one thing you have to say to them, like, look, if you if you want it, if you really, really want it, you have to be here after hours and you have to be doing the extra little bits and bobs to to show us that you really, really want it. Because once you sh- start showing me that you really, really want to do something, I'm going to, buy proxy, start giving you more stuff to do because I'm going to trust you more to do it. And, you know, you can see that you really, really want it. So I want them to then succeed. It's an organic
0: thing. Yeah. Whenever I have um, gone further with someone who came in at that entry level... And there's been a few over the course of my career who have come in at the entry level and who then went on to have careers and that I chose to, you know, invest time and effort and uh, trust into. But I didn't have to tell them to work hard or I didn't have to tell them to not give excuses and just get shit done and to go the extra mile and to try to make my life easier and to just be obsessed with getting better. Like they were just like that that's just who they were um what i've noticed yeah. is that some people who are like you said some people are just hungry there are a lot of hungry people out there. It's not even really a choice for those people. They just want it so bad that they will make it their priority.
1: Exactly. thing is, it's, it's something that we all love as well. That's the other side of it. So, you know, if you can end up doing a job that you love, it's suddenly not really a job anymore, is it? Like you're just doing this, you're doing one of your biggest passions, like as your, as your you know, your hobby or whatever is your job. So... I think a lot of the people that the you know are really successful that's that's why they started it they they didn't start it because it's like oh well, i just want to get a this sounds like a cool job it's like no we really fucking love records and we really love music and we we're all nerds and we love that kind of shit. so yeah definitely
0: turning a, a hobby into a job it's pretty cool i just did a q a on my instagram uh just to you know ask one of those ask me anything posts and stories and somebody said the something I'm paraphrasing, something along the lines of how do I make editing less draining? I know I have to do it, but like, basically like it sucks. My answer and my thoughts were, well, get better at it. <laughs> Cause if you get better at it, you're going to get faster. At <laughs> yeah. it. Um, And also get a little fucking perspective. Like if you're early in your career and the stuff you have to do is draining you, well, Maybe it's the wrong career, and then also maybe you're not appreciating how cool it is to uh, to get the chance to do audio for work. I mean, you could be in a war right now. You could be delivering pizza. You could be working in a coal mine. You could be a barista. There's all, all kinds of jobs that are far shittier than... Getting to edit drums for records,
1: yeah, absolutely. You should you should love that shit early on as well. You know, find find different ways to edit. Like you know, suddenly finding like, oh, if I do these shortcuts, whatever, it can be much much quicker. Like you were saying, it's just the more you do it, the 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 better you'll get at it.
0: Yeah, and if you're better at it, since you'll be faster at it, it'll take less time. It'll be less draining. Absolutely. Yeah, I I, I really do think actually that um, while it's not about technicality. You know, music's not about technicality. It's about conveying emotions. The technicality side of things is what allows you to have the freedom to to not get drained and to be creative. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I, I think the more mastery you have over that stuff, the more you don't have to think about it, the more energy you have for the things that really are a lot of fun. Definitely,
1: definitely. And if you learn all of those little things as well, when you're like early on in your career, you know, Later on, okay, fine, you might you might later on have an assistant that does that stuff, but you still really, really need to know how to do it in order to know if it's done correctly or I think it all just makes you a better engineer at the end of the day. Yeah, totally. You can't really be picky with that stuff early on. You just need to learn every single aspect of it because it's, it's what's going to make you a better person, a better engineer.
0: Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think that the idea of having an assistant or someone that you outsource edits to that just like the set schedule thing is a great goal to strive towards in the future but in order to get there and to really make it work you need to know what you're doing with the editing because an editor isn't going to just magically edit things the way they need to be for you like every great editor i know like you know there's there's some people i know who that's like 80% of their audio income is editing for really great producers. And what's great about these editor types like John Douglas, for instance, is they edit differently for different producers based on what that producer wants for that project. And, um, they, they, they're able to alter their style, uh, to fit that person's needs. Now, that producer who's hiring someone like John Douglas only knows to ask for things a certain way because they know what they're doing. Otherwise, you know, they could be sending a record that needs a loose feel, but just needs like some comps or a few manual edits as opposed to, you know, hundred percent grid. But if the producer doesn't know that, doesn't understand how that works. They're not going to give the proper instructions to the person that they're outsourcing it to. And then they're going to have to rely on the person that they outsource to, to understand the vision for the project. Now, in some cases that it might work out fine. Like a person like John Douglas is a good producer, is a good musician, does understand music and has enough experience to where even with no direction, he'd probably do a really good job, but that's a crapshoot, right? Like, as a producer, your vision and uh, the way you want things is it should be defined, in my opinion. And uh, how are you going to have a team that helps you without you understanding what you need out of that team?
1: Definitely, and especially like like you mentioned, when it comes to you know doing sort of slip edits or something. If if you get a producer that wants a bit more of the feel, knowing how to do that is so important. And the amount of times I've had people. You know, I've sat them down and gone, okay, this is this is what I want. I don't want it 100% gridded. I want it a bit more like slip edited. And they go, oh, why don't you just want it quantized as well? Well, music doesn't always have to be quantized to a grid, like, you know, and it's knowing kind of when to do that. and re- Again, reading the room as well, like knowing what your audience is, knowing who you're working for, like all of that stuff. Yeah, you've got to know how to do all of it, I think.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You should want to. Also, it's a lot like, you know, the restaurant owner who started as a waiter and a, a busboy and was also a host for a while and has worked in every aspect of the restaurant industry before becoming a good restaurant owner. Like that's kind of kind of how I see it to be a great producer. I'm not saying that you have to be the best editor on earth or the best Pro Tools operator on earth or, you know, the best uh technical engineer or the best, uh, the best at harmonic analysis, but you really should know how to do all those different things you should know how to edit drums properly you should know how patch bays work you just should you should just know this shit um you should know this shit even if you're going to have people working with you
1: that's yeah i think um thing is it's it's lost a lot of the time now with especially with a lot of kind of modern productions because you know anyone can buy a laptop and get logic and especially with stuff like drums you know a lot of people they kind of miss that early on of like stuff like tuning a drum kit for instance like you know a lot I'm, I'm still amazed at how many engineers just do not know how to tune drums it's like I was sitting there with drums like from a very early on like uh, very early on in my career just like being like okay so if I do this maybe it can do this and just trying to understand all of it because you never know later on, you know, if I get a drum tech on something, I can know, I can sort of say to them like, okay, I want you to tune the rack tom to a G and I want you to tune the floor tom to a C or something. And, you know, just understanding every single aspect of it, I think is so, so
0: important. Yeah, totally. So one thing that I have definitely talked about a lot is how incredible it is when you have a great drum tech on a session. It makes your life so much easier because... You don't waste your ears hitting things and you can, you know, you can stay in the control room and actually hear things the way they're coming through the microphones while an expert is tuning the drums. However, just like what we're saying with the editor scenario, if you don't know how to explain the vision of what the drum should sound like and don't know how that works, then your drum tech is going to have to be the one who defines that. And could be good, could be bad, but it's, it could be good, but have nothing to do with the vision for the record too. Yeah. Like it could be a really well-tuned drum set that isn't the sound you're going for.
1: Exactly. Yeah, exactly. You know, if you want to go for like a, a big explosive room sound and some of they tuning in the snare right down low, that, that kind of thing. Yeah, you're right.
0: Yeah. Um. And I've definitely worked with incredible drum techs and seen incredible drum techs work, but part of at least... In on records I've made, part of why I have had great luck with Drum Techs is because I did spend six months taking drum lessons and learning how to tune. Like, I'm not very good at it, but I'm good enough to get by and good enough to understand how it works and to be able to communicate that. And then you get an expert in there who their whole world revolves around drums and making drums sound good, then that's great. Otherwise, it's up to their taste. And a good for instance is is a drum tech that I talk about a lot, a dude named Matt Brown, who is just a drum genius. Best drum tech I've ever encountered anywhere. But he's not a metal guy. I mean, you know, it's not like he's ignorant to metal, but he's not a metal guy. He's not. He's like a a classic rock kind of guy, more so than anything. Or like one of those like professional drummer types who could do drum lessons all day one day then go pick up a gig with a wedding band the next day and then play like a sold-out show for an arena band the next day and then go engineer drums on a huge classic rock record the next week like one of those dudes who just is great but not a metal guy so if He was to come into some death metal session, was working on, like, say we have Alex Rudinger in the studio, and I need things tuned for 280 BPM type material, uh, and he gives me this classic rock sound, because that's what he personally prefers, that's what he wants drums to sound like, that's not going to work, so i need to be able to to tell him exactly what we're going for yeah sure then trust that with his expertise he'll be able to interpret that and deliver
1: but going back as well to what you were saying about you getting drum lessons like i mean stuff like that is so important because getting drum lessons suddenly knowing how to hit a drum properly as well like that's that's such a big thing being able to explain to a drummer when they're not you know rimshotting a backbeat or something like that okay well maybe if you play a bit more like this or you raise your seat a little bit or tilt this in a certain way um, it just makes it it makes for a better end result if you understand every single aspect of it
0: absolutely and even if you don't record drummers and all you do is program drums yeah, just even if it still helps to have learned drums, because then at least your parts will be more realistic, mm-hmm. and you can understand feel and all the other stuff as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, how many instruments do you play? And I don't mean like are you a virtuoso or pro level at, but just how many instruments do you have some basic ability with?
1: <laughs> so, uh, my main instruments, guitar. And I can play a bit of drums as well, so I think I'm I'm okay at drums actually. Um, a bit of piano, and um, I've I've had quite a musical family growing up. So my mum was a singing teacher. Um, my dad's a really fucking good guitarist, much much better than me actually. So yeah, I've always kind of been around it. I think it really really helps. Even stuff like piano, for instance, like you know, I end up recording a lot of piano with with people like Rola Tomassi, for instance just understanding like a a little bit more about like certain ways it's supposed to be played and, you know, certain sounds and stuff. I think it,
0: it does really, really help. So drums, guitar, piano, and I'm guessing some voice.
1: A, yeah, a little bit. I, again, like I'd say my guitar is like my main thing. Um, the rest
0: of it, I can I can just kind of get by. I mean, that's enough, in my opinion, as a producer, that's enough just to be able to get by so that you can communicate with people. Yeah. I took voice lessons too for, dude, I'm so terrible at singing and I hate it. Yeah. <laughs> embarrassing and never want to do it in public ever or in private even like god singing is just you know i i would rather have the most embarrassing thing imaginable happen than have to sing oh no way i will show you're not that bad yeah dude i fucking hate it but i s- still <laughs> i took voice lessons for six months or a year, just so that I would understand more about how it works uh, and so that I could help write better vocal lines with vocalists.
1: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Being able to sit there, even if, you know, because we've all done it, the amount of times we're sitting there in a studio in a control room going like, okay, sing this harmony or do this thing and just understanding how to layer that kind of stuff. Even if you can't sing very well, the fact that you've gone there and done lessons, you you sort of know what to aim for. I think that's still still cool, and I think that people should still try and try and get to know everything they're doing because it does. It again, it just goes back to this whole. It does make you a better engineer if you understand a little bit of everything that you're recording.
0: Yeah, there are engineers that are not musicians, but I feel like that's more an old school thing. Like Colin Richardson, for instance, is not a musician, which blows my mind. That blows my mind. (laughs) Absolutely blows my mind. TLA also is not a musician, blows my mind. The way TLA explained it, and I get it, is that he says he has an advantage. Well, first of all, he's more of a mixer than a producer by his own words, but he says that he has the benefit of approaching it like an audience member like a music fan and so he's able to not worry about the bullshit musicians think about and just make music sound the way he would want it to sound as a fan and i guess you know that works for him but he's also freakishly talented and just gifted <laughs> really really gifted anyone who's any pro is gifted to some degree but like you know then you have your outliers like tla but i think for most producers not being a musician is a huge setback
1: absolutely yeah because like i mean like you said the whole engineer thing like back in the day you're not 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 having to know as much about what they're recording it's because you know the budgets were there for an engineer like an assistant uh producer like this you know there's suddenly five people in the studio that are doing different jobs um whereas now obviously budgets are are much less, and it's more about if you're doing a record, you're usually engineering and producing it, and you know, all the rest of it. So,
0: yeah, you the definition of being a producer has changed. Um, whereas in the older days, it the producer role was more like an executive producer, um, more like a movie director, where yeah, you know, the movie director has you know the vision for the main for the project, but the but the director is, like, working on budgets. They're getting a director of photography who does—the director of photography is actually the person who's setting up the shots for the most part. They have people who do the lighting, then the script writers, then actors. And, you know, they, they have to coordinate all that stuff. And they have, you know, all the best in, people in the world, you know, on a Martin Scorsese or a Chris Nolan movie where they're working with A-listers, A-list actors. And then the best crews and the director's job is to make sure that that's all working properly and together to fulfill this vision. And I do think that the older school definition of a music producer is more like that, more like the Rick Rubin, Howard Benson style, which works great. If you have the right team, that can work great. And if you can get to that point, that's great. But the modern version doesn't really allow for that until I mean, you could get to that point also, you know, nice goal, but like in real life coming up, producer has to assume many different roles and uh, it's almost, in my opinion, not really optional. I would say that it's borderline required and not because I say so, but just because I know so many producers that are doing great, who can do it all. I'm just thinking like, you know, if, if that's your competition... You be- you better better get serious. Yeah, right. Yeah, like if someone like Zach Servini is the competition, well, that kid can do a whole lot of stuff, and I think that that's kind of the modern template for a successful producer, is being able to do it all.
1: Absolutely. I always find it quite interesting whenever I read about um, Steve, Al- Steve Albini, and he always talks about how he's just an engineer. He doesn't doesn't produce anything, and he just sits there and, and hits record. But
0: So I had him on the podcast, and I respect his point of view, and I would say this to him, but, like, I don't agree that he's just an engineer. Like, I think that he's a per- total producer, but it's his style of production – is less about him and way more about, I guess, the artist. Or It's, it's kind of like, here's an equivalent, in my opinion. Some bands' image is no image. Like, I remember people used to say that Opeth didn't have an image, but they do have an image. Their image, well, now they've gone very deep into the 1970s thing, but earlier on, they weren't quite so Led Zeppelin-looking. But the image was still no image that was the image like that was the brand was We Don't Dress Up and I feel like with the Albini style of production his style of production is still production
1: I mean you still listen to it and go that's
0: an Albini record exactly yeah
1: he's he's obviously just doing it in a different way isn't he like, it's still going through his ears and his filter.
0: He's still making decisions. So it's an interesting one because I don't see him as just an engineer, even if he sees himself as one. What do you think?
1: Uh, no, I totally agree with you. Yeah. I mean, it's I was literally talking about this the other week to someone. Like, you know, it's still... He says that he is just an engineer and he doesn't produce anything. And I've known a couple of people that have gone and recorded with him. Um, and they do say he's very hands-off. But then... You know, it's his his decision to maybe set up a drum kit in a certain studio, and you know, put sets put certain mics up. It's different, but and he's still engineering, but he's still engineering because he wants to get to a certain like point at the end of it, right? You know, his, his all of his decisions are because he likes things to sound that kind of way. If he didn't like things to sound that way, then he would put drums in a really dry space and, you know, all the the rest of it. So, yeah, I I totally agree.
0: Yeah, it's like the Kurt Ballou thing too. Uh, Like, I think Kurt Ballou also is from that school of, I I guess more from the Albini school. Kurt does his own thing and he's very, very humble about it. But you can spot a Kurt Ballou record. Absolutely. It's got a totally defined, identifiable sound inescapable. You know a Kurt Ballou record when you're hearing Kurt Ballou record. And bands go to him because of what he brings to the table. So the thing is, he's selective about the bands he works with, right? So he's not going to work with a band that doesn't have a certain aesthetic that he feels is right for what he does. So even that, even being just the act of being selective, about who you work with is part of being a producer, in my opinion.
1: Yeah, definitely. And like, a lot of people say about you know Kurt Blue and Steve Albini and stuff like you know, well, it's the studio and parts of big sound of it. Well, yeah, sure, but I mean, if you or me were to go to God City to do a record, it would sound totally different. So it's it's not. I mean, yes, a room can sound a certain way, but it's still going through whoever's ears are uh, doing that particular project.
0: Yeah, exactly. That's uh, <laughs> that's why whenever. I'm talking to someone about doing nail the mix and they're worried about sharing their the way they mix with people you know it's usually with the older guys but uh my answer is always dude you're not sharing your brain with them or your ears so no matter what you could Give them your session and it still won't sound like you. Exactly. Like they could copy every single thing you do, screenshot everything, make presets out of everything. And then it's still not going to sound like you because they don't hear things the way you do. They didn't, they're not going to be able to take something from scratch and make the 10,000 decisions that get you to that point. Yeah, exactly. If they get good, they're going to make their own 10,000 decisions and get them to their own point. But you're never actually going to be able to give away the true differentiator which is your own skills your own ears your own brain
1: yeah i think that's exactly it isn't it like everyone is so different we've all gone through different experiences in life that have led us to this point that we're at now and all of those i don't care what you say all of it like you know makes makes us the way we are so if I'm doing a record with a certain band, it's going to sound totally different to if someone else is doing it. It's, it's all those little, very microscopic uh, decisions that you make on something that hopefully creates your sound. Yeah, exactly.
0: Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this podcast, then you should know that it's brought to you by URM Academy. URM Academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love. You've probably heard me talk about Nail the Mix before, and if you're a member, you already know how amazing it is. At the beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multi-tracks to a new song by artists like of God, Angels and Airwaves, Knock Loose, Opeth, Meshuggah, Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many others. Over 60 at this point. Then at the end of the month, the producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mix a song on the album and takes your questions live on air. And these are guys like TLA, Will Putney, Jens Bogren, Dan Lancaster, Tui Madsen, Andrew Wade, and many, many more. You'll also get access to MixLab, which is our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics. As well as Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multi-tracks cleared for use in your portfolio, so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those of you who really want to step up their game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhance, which includes everything I already told you about and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, low end, and so forth. It's over 500 hours of content. And man, let me tell you, this stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-ones, which are basically office hour sessions with us and mix rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes and fix it up and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. So, if any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills in your audio career, head over to urm.academy to find out more. It's funny when, whenever people bring up how do you develop your own sound, my thoughts are always, you don't, don't worry about it. Like, you are going to develop your own sound by the act of getting better and doing work. Like, you are already unique. So, if you have the capability of, having an identifiable sound. Like if that's in you, if you're one of those people who are going to go on to, you know, have their thing where they're recognizable, well, that's, that's in your personality already. Like that's already there. You just have to develop the skills to be able to make that reality. But, uh, you don't, you're not going to have to try to uh be yourself you already are yourself
1: absolutely and that's again just going back to making sure that you learn absolutely everything you possibly can like you know knowing all of the like things because that I mean if you learn absolutely everything then you're going to have so much at your disposal when you're doing records later on it's going to it's going to make you you know sound who you are
0: so how did you learn
1: and um, so <laughs> I actually um my dad was an engineer like back in the day so um he when i was old enough which was probably about 13 um he had like a tape machine and a a little console and stuff in our loft um and he would just teach me how to do it and eventually i just started recording myself and yeah kind of kind of went from there really then when i was kind of old, old enough um i started recording Bands from my school, like just in our house, in our family house. And yeah, I I just learned from doing it, basically, just fucking up a lot. I think um, learning to record yourself is also really important, (laughs) Um, especially with guitarists,
0: you know? Oh, yes. I mean, what an amazing way to get better at guitar. Hell yeah. But yeah, if you're able to record yourself, like you have a client to practice on 24-7.
1: Yeah, it's so important. I mean, like, it's just little things like, okay, if I play a bit harder like this, it it gets this kind of sound. Or if I, you know, if I use, even down to stuff like, I'll be there trying different leads or whatever, Going, maybe this lead sounds different or something. I think like knowing all of that, knowing how to record yourself and knowing... You know, what's, what can get the best result for you when you then go to work with another band? It's like, oh, okay, well, I know that if they're not quite hitting hard enough or something, I can tell them dig in a little bit harder on this point or something like that. Yeah, super important to record yourself, I think.
0: Yeah, it's one of those things that if someone isn't doing that in this day and age, they are hampering their progress. Even as an instrumentalist, like forget being an engineer. Even if you're just a guitar player who only wants to play guitar, get better guitar, you should still learn to record yourself because that's the only way, literally the only way that you're going to actually know what you sound like and how good you are or aren't. Because there's no way for you to know that while you're actually playing. And there's no way for you to know that based on what other people tell you because they lie or they can't hear, right? You know, they don't know what they're listening to a lot of the time. You can't accurately judge because while you're playing, well, your focus is going in multiple different directions. Like you're focused on what your physical body is doing. You're focused on the actual music that you're playing. And then it's vibrating through your body. You might be hearing it a combination in the room of the acoustic sound versus what's coming through speakers. Like there's all kinds of shit going on while you're actually playing that distracts you from being able to hear it accurately. So if you record yourself, you can then listen back and know the truth. It's the only way there's no other way.
1: Yeah. I mean, again, going back to like a lot of people still don't do that. They do they because a lot, well, some engineers or some assistants or whatever they come in, they're, they're not very musical. And it's, I think that's when then maybe they don't quite have the edge over someone else that has already been there and done that and sat in their bedroom recording themselves in Logic or Pro Tools or whatever for hours on end
0: trying to get better. Yeah, totally. It. When you started recording yourself, when you started learning at that young age, what was the goal? Was it to become a musician, like become a guitar player? in a band or was it to become a producer?
1: Uh, yeah, okay. When I was much younger, it was always to just be in a band. I've always like played in bands ever since I was probably about 13. I've I joined my first band. Um, so, yeah, it was back in the day, it was very much like I want to be in a band that is touring and does really well. But actually, the more I started recording myself, the more I was like, actually, I really enjoy just this part of it. And... Then again, like the next couple of years after recording a couple of just like mates, uh, school bands and stuff like that, I was very much like, OK, this is this is what I want to do now. This is my passion. And I still like on and off played in bands as well, like over the next couple of years. But yeah, I've all, I've I've known from quite an early age that this is what I wanted to do. Um, and I've just worked my ass off to actually make it happen so I can work at it full time.
0: I think it's just worth noting. I just asked because I feel like the modern producer, like I know that I feel like 90% or more of, you know, URM listeners and subscribers and producers I know start as musicians. That's the goal. I think that they start as musicians, but, uh, record themselves because they want to record their own music and then one thing leads to another and then they are professional producers. Yeah, 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 for sure. It's like the path to becoming a producer has changed. Though I do think that the intern-to-assistant pipeline still kind of exists, but um, how it starts is what's changed. The bedroom guitar player who records him or herself now being the starting point is... The difference, I think, it's weird for an intern to come in and be non-musical. Strange.
1: Yeah, I would say probably mo- most people that come to the studio that intern can play something. Yeah, mo- I would say most people that come in are, are um, usually musicians. And actually, you, you do notice it if someone comes in; they're maybe not a musician. It does take them a little bit longer to. They may be really technical, and you know. Very, very good at Signal Flow and all the other stuff like that. But just learning stuff like feel, like you can't, you can't really teach it. You, I think you've just got to practice it and and play a lot of music to kind of get that. Really, yeah. I've definitely had a couple of people that are, that have struggled because they've not been musicians.
0: Yeah. So, at what point did things become, I would say, pro for you when it came to recording? Like, how long did it take from when you started recording to where you would say that it was actually your job?
1: I mean, it's still quite a long time. So I I started obviously when I was quite young and then eventually when I went to college or whatever and then I went to a place called SAE um, in London, which is School of Audio Engineering. Um, and then after that, I basically, um, that was in London, then I moved back to Southampton like a couple of years later and I just started. I, I made friends with Neil, the studio owner, like down here. Um, and eventually, I was like, "Look, can I sit in on some stuff? Like, do whatever you want. Basically, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll just be be on hand for whatever you need." And at that point, I, ha- I actually had two other jobs as well. So I started. Um, I started kind of uh, assisting on some stuff, and then I was also doing my own projects like as and when I could get them in and then I worked as a guitar teacher for a little bit and I worked as a I worked behind the bar at a music venue as well so it was eventually um when I started getting more and more work then I quit like one of the jobs I think I quit maybe the bar first then I quit the guitar teaching eventually and then then eventually yeah, made it a full-time thing so I'd say it's been full-time for me probably about Ten years now, something like that. Yeah, nine, ten years. But it was definitely a, a struggle, like, like you said. Like you have to be really hungry. So I was really fucking hungry when I was doing it. You know, when I first started, I was in the studio. Sometimes I would finish work, go to the studio for eight pm, leave at six am, like that kind
0: of stuff. So I think that what you just said though is uh, really wise. Lots of people ask, "How do I go pro?" or "Should I just quit my job?" or at what point do I know that it's time? The way that you did it is, to me, the most logical thing. Unless some huge opportunity just presents itself like, you know, you can go be an intern for Will Putney or something, then, yeah, drop everything and go do that. Yeah. If you don't have that kind of opportunity and you want to do this, but you have this, uh, this problem, and the problem of having to survive in the meantime, well... You're going to have to have a job or two jobs. And the trick, in my opinion, or, is to grow the studio business gradually and organically until it makes sense to drop the other jobs. I mean, drop them as quickly as you can, but the just dropping everything to jump into recording full-time before you're able to re- actually record full-time is kind of stupid.
1: Yeah. The thing is like back then as well, I was I was taking pretty much anything I could, but also I was focusing my efforts on certain things that I wanted to do more of. So, you know, certain bands that I thought, oh, this, this band has a lot of potential, I would get in touch with them and say, hey, let's do something much cheaper and I'll spend a bit bit more time on it and, you know, make a really, really fucking good record because I had faith that that might do something. And eventually one or two of those records, it kind of paid off for me. And, you know, I wasn't really posting about the the stuff that I didn't... Um, I wasn't as passionate about. I was mainly focusing my, my efforts on certain types of bands and... Um, and that's eventually when I started getting more and more of the kind of hardcore and, and metal stuff.
0: And that's what you wanted? Yeah, that's what I wanted,
1: yeah. So when I when I first started doing it, um, I was definitely more more interested in recording like hardcore bands and, you know, the Kurt Blue type of production of like very organic and, you know, that that kind of thing. Obviously, a taste changed over, you know, however many years, but um, that's what I kind of focused my efforts on. But at the same time, I was still recording stuff that, Didn't sound anything like that, you know?
0: Yeah, uh, but I do think it's important to specialize, but it's weird because you have to know where to draw the line and also have to understand where you're just limiting yourself from progressing. Like, I remember really early on, one of the first things I did, like, really early on when starting my studio was, this will give you an idea how old it was, I put a classified ad out and uh, said, (laughs) three songs free, every song after that, a hundred dollars a song. Um, oh wow! And got quite a few people hitting me up to do just three songs, of course. And I was happy to do that um, because I just I needed practice and I wanted to have people coming through. But the first person to take me up on more songs did ten songs, and it was country. And I fucking hate country so much. Like I hate it. <laughs> it's torture for me, but I was more than happy to work on it. And I'm glad I did. I'm really, really glad I did. It was a great learning experience, but I don't think that it was stupid to take on that record or any of those records in any of those genres, even though what I wanted to do was metal. As I got more experience and got better at metal, then I was able to do a better job for metal bands and get more metal bands in the door. But before that, I had zero experience, and why would, why would the metal bands come to me with zero experience? You had to build your reputation little by little, and the only way to do that is by doing work, and you're not going to be able to convince bands, the bands of the caliber that will help build your reputation, even on a local level, you're not going to be able to convince them to come to you until you have some bit of a body of work behind you. Um, bands will take a chance on you once they feel like there's a reason to take a chance on you. But if you have nothing, nothing to your name, uh, why would anyone, why would they do that? So you have to figure out how to get people to agree to work with you. And yeah, that's what I did was just by offering shit for free.
1: Were you contacting bands that you liked as well, that you thought you could bring something? To-
0: Eventually. Yeah. Eventually, yes. But I didn't want to get myself into a situation I couldn't handle at first, you know, so I didn't want to contact bands that I really liked before I knew that I could do the job. Mm -hmm. So that's why I put out the ad and just, I figured the bands that would respond to that weren't going to be like the highest quality projects and they weren't. Yeah. So the types of people who go for that aren't you know, they're appropriate for the person who's putting out the $100 song, three songs free offer.
1: I think that's that's a really interesting way to look at it as well. Like not jumping into anything that like you couldn't really do it justice straight away, I think is is quite um quite a good, good thing. Because I've definitely, there's been records like even I did six years ago that I was like, well, I'm not the engineer I am like today, six years ago. And I wish I could have done that now. And maybe I should have, not done that like at that time so yeah i think it it is um definitely just getting you know back in the day when you started getting whatever you could um and then when you were eventually to that point where you you're like oh maybe i can bring something to the table to one of the these other bands i like then start contacting them
0: yeah and i totally believe in the concept of getting thrown in the deep end and seeing if you sink or swim but you have to be ready for that point in time like you have to at least know how to swim. You can't just jump into the deep end and hope that you can swim. You should know how to swim at least a little bit. Um, And I've definitely thrown myself in the deep end on lots of things. Um, And I think that there's some opportunities that come up in life where if you don't just throw yourself in the deep end and get in over your head, you're not going to progress. But at the very beginning... The, at the very beginning, you can really hurt yourself by over-promising and under-delivering or saying that you can do stuff that you can't really do.
1: Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I think, like, throwing throwing yourself into the deep end on some of the bigger records as well and or, like, you know, more established bands. Um, even looking back, because I've definitely... I've had that in the past where I've, you know, I've worked with a band that maybe I wasn't really ready to do it, but I'm glad I did do it because... You know, now looking back on those records, I can go, well, I would approach that differently now. So if I got another band like later on that I really loved, you know, I would do it in a different way or or my, um, my approach to it would be slightly different, I think.
0: Yeah, here's an example of something that I think would be good. Like, say that you get the opportunity to be a Will Putney intern and he uses Logic. He needs you to know how to use Logic, but uh, you don't use Logic. And the gig is in a week. Like if you want this position, you have to be in New Jersey one week from today. Don't know how to use Logic. Well, I would say that if you already have been recording for a while and you are good at a DAW, like Cubase or Pro Tools or whatever, um, take the gig and just don't sleep for a week and learn fucking Logic. Throw yourself in the deep end and go for it. Like that's that to me is like a <laughs> an acceptable time. Like that's the kind of situation where you should throw yourself in the deep end, see if you will sink or swim, see how good you are. Are you able to just learn that quickly enough, transfer your skills over and handle that pressure? That That's great. It's very different than having not really even recorded a record before, really know what you're doing at all and trying to get a band that has recorded before to work with you yeah totally yeah so i think that like what you're talking about with throwing yourself in the deep end with bigger bands i'm sure you didn't do it out of nowhere
1: no and like that's the thing like you know the band obviously liked what what you were doing at that point anyway to do that so i think it's just i mean it's like anything like the more you do something the more you get experience and i think um again i'm i'm not the engineer i was like six years ago now i'm a i'm a different person i see do records differently see things differently so but yes yeah, it's, it's all a learning experience isn't it
0: yeah just out of curiosity you started getting awards around 2017 2018 which i know is something that a lot of producers aspire to just out of curiosity did that change anything for you career-wise no not at all (laughs) i didn't think so that's i that's what i thought you were going to say
1: no yeah not at all and like especially because a lot of that stuff's i I guess it's like when you've when you're doing records all the time and your head's down all the time you don't really pay attention to that stuff anyway i think but no I, i wouldn't say it really changed anything it's nice to be recognized for stuff for sure like but we've all i mean i think a lot of engineers still have imposter syndrome that have been doing it for like 2030 years and i think um there's definitely an element of that with me sometimes where i'm like am i am i alright am i doing this all right
0: <laughs> yeah someone i know told me something funny he said that the the curse of older millennials and gen xers is that everyone has ridiculous amounts of imposter syndrome and then the problem with the gen z you know the younger generations is the opposite is the Overconfidence, like uh, confidence that's not backed up by anything, like the exact polar opposite. They're both bad. Like imposter syndrome is terrible. I have it. And uh, being overconfident, like falsely confident or confident for no reason, that's also terrible. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It was kind of funny when he explained that to me because I noticed that uh, that's actually very accurate. Um, But The imposter syndrome thing i mean do the awards help they haven't helped me with it (laughs) (laughs) no
1: absolutely not you still (laughs) are you still going to every record thinking oh god am i going to do a good job why have i been contacted to do this like that's the thing that goes through my head all the time whereas you know i I should give myself credit sometimes but it definitely it
0: happens to all of us i think the thing with awards is i know that Yeah, it is nice to be recognized, but I really do think that one thing that is important for people to understand is that music career is built off of a bunch of different things happening over a long period of time and a momentum that's created by all those things, all those projects, all those relationships, one award or one band is not going to make the difference. I mean, you know if the band is Metallica that might make a difference (laughs) yeah right but it's generally not going to be one thing like one one inflection point that changes everything that's generally not how it works
1: no not at all it's it's always just you know I think um with anything like that it's just little things that you know one one year you could be nominated for some stuff oh that's cool the next year suddenly a, a band that you quite like gets in contact with you and Um, The next year, I don't know, like it's, it's all quite organic usually, isn't it? It's not really one thing that suddenly happens and then suddenly
0: your CLA, like, you know. No, you just keep working.
1: Yeah, exactly. You just keep going.
0: Yeah. I I think that that is it is just, you have to commit yourself to just working forever basically just working forever (laughs) and uh, not getting
1: it sounds morbid when you say it like that
0: (laughs) i know but it's the truth just uh but with that kind of like the stock market i guess with uh, the idea that you shouldn't think about it in terms of the ups and downs that happen in the short term because it's not about that you just think about putting in money for the long term and just putting in the money regardless of what's going on. If it's down, if it's up, whatever, just keep putting it in. With the music career, it's kind of similar. It's like, shouldn't get too excited about the good stuff. Shouldn't get too depressed about a project going wrong. Just keep focused on getting better and making more. That's, I think that that's, that's what I mean. That's what's really, really important because one project is not going to make or break you there if a project goes bad you get fired or whatever it really doesn't have to be the end of the world it doesn't have to even exist past that project not working out yeah yeah you're right i mean you could turn it into something that it's you could make it something bigger but uh you don't have to
1: no not at all i think like you know like you said just keep working keep making relationships with people um You know, don't be a dickhead is the other thing as well. Like, because, you know, in the music industry, if you are a dickhead, it, it does get
0: around. I think that in the music industry, that was acceptable for a long time. There was a time period where being a tyrant was okay. Like producers could be tyrants, managers could be tyrants. And uh, it was fine. I don't think that people put up with that shit now. No, not at all. Yeah, it definitely gets around. Just there there aren't the budgets to justify that kind of behavior. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So at what point do you feel like uh, you started to get more bands that are, I guess, bands that are out there in the, in the world? Like, was it an, a gradual thing or did you do like one project that did well, and then you started to get more bands of that style. Like, like around when did that start to happen?
1: It was it was definitely gradual, I think. But there was I remember um, like quite early on. I worked with a band called Bastions, who in the UK um, were sort of on on the underground scene, like were quite up and coming, um, and I ended up doing. I ended up doing their first album, basically. And I think that's kind of... That's when I could see it started to... I started to get more bands like that. And, you know, um, and yeah, I just kind of focused my efforts on doing that kind of stuff. Um, And then eventually it, it sort of built up and built up and built up. So, yeah, I reckon... Well, I did that record maybe i gonna say it's about 10 years ago or something now. That was quite a long time ago. That was definitely like a turning point, but there's always, I think, turning points in your career, isn't there? You can look back on stuff and go like, oh, well, you know, six years ago I did this thing and, you know, two years ago I did this. and But it's always gradual. I don't think you ever, you don't do one record and then suddenly you've got bring me knocking at your door. Like, you know, you sort of have to, you have to work on it.
0: Yeah. I think of things like Andrew Wade in A Day to Remember, right? Like, so... Or Joey Sturgis and Attack Attacker, Devil Wars Prada, or Jason Sukoff and Trivium, or Andy Sneap in Kill, Switch, and Killswitch Engage. You know, like these producers' careers definitely took a turn because of these bands, um, and a lot of great stuff happened for them afterwards. But it's not like they weren't already doing stuff before that right? Um, or during that, the, they were already working and then they happened to team up with a band that then, you know, exploded, but you can't count on that happening.
1: Yeah. I actually think um, like a, a lot of the time as well, is like having a relationship with a band and cause there's been a couple of bands that I've worked with, um, that I'm on their fourth record with now. And like, say for instance, a band called employed to serve, um, I've done all of all of their albums. And, you know, when I first started recording their not it was pretty early on. And I was I was pretty fresh. And now they, you know, um are on Spine Farm and they're doing really well and they're playing download and they're playing Hellfest and all this other stuff. Um, and that's definitely been a relationship that we've both built on together. Because they haven't been a band that's suddenly just gone, oh, we're on a major label now. It's, you know, they they've worked on it and they've tore their asses off and they've kind of just carried me through with it as well so I think that's
0: so you've both developed your careers in parallel
1: yes yeah yeah and I think that's important as well I think like I mean not I I'm sort of quite lucky that I've had a band like that um you know come back to me for four records I think that's cool not everyone can do that but it's definitely helped my career along and you know working with a band like that as well once you're on their fourth record you can I think that you can produce a much better record with someone than someone's first record because at that point you know them very well you know how to you know how to read a room and stuff like that I think it's um it can make for a much much better result so yeah there's been a couple of bands like that that I've I've had like you know three or four records with that I've definitely you've seen them grow and grow and grow throughout the career and And maybe they've seen the same on my end.
0: I actually think that that's the trick to getting successful bands to come back, especially if you're the producer who worked with them when they were not a successful band yet. You know, lots of bands work with who's convenient early or who they can afford or or like, you know, maybe not their top choice, but their top choice for what's realistic at that point in time. Yeah, yeah. Right? So that's oftentimes how these relationships start when both the producer and the band aren't big yet. Uh, but then you see some of these relationships where the band goes back over and over and over and over like a Jamie King and uh Between the Buried and Me or like Andrew Wade and a Day to Remember. Um, yeah, yeah. It, and, you know, eventually it's just natural that they... Won't do every record together forever till the end of time. But, you know, three, four, five records. um, Yeah. That's a lot. And I think that the reason that that happens, like the trick, not a trick, but like the defining factor from what I've noticed is that since the band is getting bigger, they do have the option to go to other people. Like they have bigger budgets. They have more choices. That's for sure but they are going back to the person that they started with. And why is that? And I think that it's because that person isn't at the same place that they were at either. Like they have continued to get better. They have continued to improve and they have continued to grow in their careers. And so it's a natural thing that they have basically evolved together. I feel like If the producer had gone in a completely different direction or had not grown their skills and career, well, then maybe the band wouldn't be going back. But uh, if they already have a great relationship and they're both pushing, 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 then that makes sense because then they're still on the same page. Sure.
1: I think a lot of the time as well, like, you know, when you've built up a career with a band over a couple of records or three or four records, it's sort of uh, at which point, you know, the producer is kind of helping the band like define their sound in in some ways. I always l- listen to um like go back to listen to old Dillinger Escape Plan records, for instance, with Steve Everts. I love hearing the progression of Steve Everts like, you know, back in the day to what he became and now he's this amazing, incredible engineer. Um, but like I think that was a big part of their sound is having someone like Steve working with them on, you know, going through all of those records. I think um, and a band like, I know their last record, they did some stuff slightly differently. But like for me, that's it's a huge part of how Dillinger Escape Plan sounded like, you know, later on in their career.
0: Yeah, totally. That is a great example. But, you know, Steve kept on pushing himself just like they did. So it was is a really good relationship. I think that you need to be on the artist's wavelength, wherever it is that they're going. You need to be there in order for the chemistry to remain intact. So with Dillinger, they were going all kinds of weird places, but in uh, all kinds of awesome places, but Steve was matching that growth and that expansion of skills and scope of work to where it still made sense for them to go back.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a cool thing. I think though that producers shouldn't get too bummed though when a band goes to somebody else I mean, I understand that it's always a bummer, but they shouldn't take it personally because there's no rule that says that they have to come back. And also, if you put yourself in the artist's shoes, sometimes you want to go to someone else, not because there's anything wrong with the person you worked with before. There's several great producers out there and you want, as an artist, to just work with this other one too just for whatever reason um, not because you don't want to work with the one you worked with before but just because you also want to work with this person and uh you have the opportunity to
1: i mean that's that's the beautiful thing about art isn't it like you know you you don't have to do the same thing twice you can do something completely different on your next record and i think actually that should be encouraged as well a lot of the time for bands to find their feet a little bit and see what actually works for them and you know give it a go because if they don't do that, then you're just going to knock out... Well, not all the time, but a lot of the time you're just going to knock out the same records every time. So I think it's cool. And I think that um, you do see it every now and then. Like a band does a, a very curveball, you know, thing. Look at Loathe, for instance, like, you know, yep. obviously did that record um, and then the latest two songs or the latest song they released is, is very much like low and splatty, very EV style, like... And that's cool. And do you know what? Like, even if people don't like it, who gives a fuck? Like, at least you've tried it. At least you've you've done it. If you, d- if you decide you don't like it, go back, do something else.
0: Like Exactly. I mean, if you're not taking risks, what are you doing?
1: Yeah, exactly. Just playing it safe.
0: Yeah. You know, and I think even the bands that get accused of making the same record over and over, like Slayer or something or cannibal corpse or if you actually listen to those records they're not making the same records over and over like for instance slayer i'm just saying them because that they were always accused of that if you actually listen to their records you'll notice that they all incorporate different things they all have their their signature sound but uh they're always doing new things there's every record has some element in it that the previous one didn't have and uh and so I think even with an artist that's sticking to their brand and their brand is to not deviate too much, they're still adding to it. Like the successful ones, they're still pushing it further. Always. They, you have to. You can't just make the same thing over and over again.
1: No, no, you can't. The thing is, like a lot of the time it's going to change naturally anyway, because, you know, even as engineers, for instance, like where a lot of us are out now it wasn't the same 10 years ago and it's exactly the same with bands like you know someone might be in a completely different place than they were when they made their last record and that's totally fine that's what music's about you just do you and you know if it works it works
0: yeah that's why when fans wish that a band was more like they were it kind of shows that they're not seeing them as humans they're just seeing they're seeing them as their deities or archetypes or some weird some weird thing, uh, that isn't a person that is, they don't understand that, you know, that record that you love or those records that you love were done at a certain point in time when that band or that artist was feeling a certain way, was at a certain point in their lives, was at a certain point in their skills, was at a certain point in their artistic journey, was at a certain point in their relationship with the producer, like all these things came together to create, that and you can't recreate that because it was a moment in time and the moment is gone
1: the moment's gone exactly
0: yeah so they could make other things in the future that are great too but they will be different because it's a different moment in time the uh the chemicals (laughs) the the recipe is going to be different there's no way there's no way to make it the same
1: yeah yeah for sure
0: if you love something by an artist even if you only love one record you should be thankful that that record exists and not hate on them because you don't like what came after.
1: Well, it's also, if the band made that, you you know, your favorite record three times, then suddenly is it going
0: to be a special to you anymore? Probably not. Probably not. Exactly. Probably not. Anyways, Lewis, I think this is a good place to end the episode i want to thank you very much for taking the time to uh hang out and for being flexible with my schedule it's been awesome talking <laughs> to you
1: it's all good man yeah good to finally
0: talk to you yeah absolutely man thank you so much no worries dude all right then Another URM podcast episode in the bag. Please remember to share our episodes with your friends as well as post them to your Facebook and Instagram or any social media you use. Please tag me at AL Levy URM Audio at URM Academy and of course tag our guests as well. I mean they really do appreciate it. In addition, do you have any questions for me about anything? Email them to me at AL at URM.academy. That's E Y A L at U-R-M dot A-C-A-D-E-M-Y and use the subject line, answer me ale. All right then, till next time, happy mixing. You've been listening to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy and press the podcast link today.